In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, a few months ago, I wrote an in-depth series on the anthropology, the history, the philosophy, the biology of the culture of manhood that we find across the globe and across time. Yes, there are differences between culture to culture, small ones, but they all have these high-level general principles in common on what it means to be a man and what manhood means. And one of those high-level principles is that a man is supposed to be a protector. And that means using violence and aggression to protect his family, his tribe, and also to invade other countries to get more resources. It means being competitive, it means having martial courage. That's what it means to be a man. And we make the case that's sort of the core of masculinity on what it means to be a man across cultures. But why is this? Why is it that men are called upon to fulfill this role as protector and are expected to be aggressive and competitive and sometimes willing to do violence if necessary? Um, some would say that it's just a completely a cultural construct and that if you change the culture, you can change the way men behave. But our guest today has an argument that there is a biological component to why men tend to be more violent, more aggressive, more competitive. Uh, his name is Dr. Richard Rangham. He's a professor of biological anthropology at Harvard University, and he's the co-author of the book, Demonic Males, Apes and the Origins of Human Violence. And in his book, he highlights research that's been done in recent years uh, among primates, specifically the great apes and specifically the chimpanzees, on male violence. And what he's found is that there's a lot of similarities specifically between male chimps and male humans on how we approach violence and how we they form male bonded groups. Male chimps also are very violent and we'll talk about how they actually engage in warfare in a, in a way, just as male humans do. Uh, male chimps tend to form male bonded groups, uh, like little armies basically, little gangs, just like male humans tend to do. So it's just a fascinating discussion. And we only scratched the surface in this conversation, so I, I recommend you go pick up the book after you listen to this podcast to delve deeper into this. So without further ado, let's get on to the show with Dr. Richard Rangham. Dr. Rangham, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. Well, before we get to talking about your book, Demonic Males, let's talk a bit about your profession, because I think it's interesting. I never heard of this before until I read your book. You're a professor of biological anthropology. Can you explain what biological anthropology is? Let me first explain what anthropology is. And that is, of course, just the study of people from um, many different perspectives, but particularly understanding different cultures. Um, and then biological anthropology is the biological component of that. And to some extent, it looks at differences among cultures. But actually, uh, the great majority of its uh, 
attention is given to thinking about us as a species in comparison to other species. So asking questions about why is it that we are have different kinds of bodies, different kinds of physiology, different kinds of behavior, in my case, from other species. Interesting. And you uh, specifically uh, focus on chimps, right, or primates. Well, I started studying chimpanzees um, in the 1970s, and when I did that, I was not an anthropologist. I was a, a just an ordinary biologist uh, thinking about the evolution of animal behavior. But there's something so striking when you study chimpanzees, and after about 20 minutes of seeing them close up in the wild um, and just seeing the way they use their eyes and their facial gest- expressions and their gestures, um, you realize that there's something about chimpanzees that uh, is sort of half human, half animal, uh, to put it at its crudest. You know, they, they have uh, a lot of complexity in the way that their behavior and their, their mental processes are organized. And so that draws you, as a biologist studying chimpanzees, into the study of anthropology. Okay. So your book is called Demonic Mills. This was written back in 1996, and it's about apes and the origins of human violence. And until fairly recently, scientists thought that human beings were the only species of animal that deliberately killed members of their own species um, in acts of warfare or murder. And they often blamed our ability to reason or civilization for, for our violent tendencies. Um, but that changed uh, because of an event that happened in, 19, in the 1970s where primatologists observed an incident amongst a pack of chimps um, that had forced them to reevaluate humanity's monopoly on premeditated meditated killing and war. Can you describe that event? Uh, yes. No, you're absolutely right about the setup. Um, the, I mean, even in the late 1960s, uh, there was a very famous book uh, called On Aggression by the great biologist Conrad Lorenz. And, and he said, humans are unique. Uh, we don't kill uh, we, we kill each other. Other animals don't. The thing is that people hadn't watched animals much at that point. And there we were <clears throat> in 1974 uh, with chimpanzees in the wild, uh, already realizing that there was something pretty intense going on about their relationships. Because we were working with uh, two groups of chimps, which had been one about five years before, but they'd become increasingly separate. And in January 1974, a small group of chimpanzees from one of those communities moved towards the territorial border and um, went into the area that's normally occupied by the neighboring group, and they found one individual in the neighboring group who they stalked like as if they were prey, as if it was lions stalking an antelope, and got sufficiently close that the uh, victim was unable to escape. He was chased down, and they um, grabbed him and pummeled him really hard. Uh, He didn't die on the spot. He was able to drag himself away, but he died a couple of days later. And that was the first case that that, uh, any of the chimp people saw uh, in which you had really deliberate hunting and killing of a member of their own species, another adult of their own species. Very dramatic. Yeah, the way you described it, it just seemed really brutal um, because chimps are they're they're very strong and they're like three or four times stronger than human beings or something like that. Yes, I mean, one of the amazing things, uh, as we've now accumulated much more information since uh, in the last 20 years, <clears throat> is 
that you can take uh, something like a hundred kills that have that have been seen with real confidence in the wild, and in not a single case have any of the attackers been hurt. Well, that's amazing, considering that you've got a an animal three or four times as strong as a human fighting for its life, absolutely desperate, but it can't put any um, wounds on the aggressors. And why is that? Because they always choose when attacking to choose in sufficient to attack in sufficient number that they're safe. So basically, if uh, if four of them uh, each take one limb and hold it down, then the fifth can do whatever they like. They can they can you know drum on on the the rib cage of the victim and uh, nothing's going to happen. And in fact, what they do is they tear out the thorax and they tear off the testicles and they they uh, pull skin back uh, by gripping it with their teeth to uh, just to pull it away from the body. Uh, awful wounds all over the place. I mean, it's terrible stuff. And yet they don't get hurt because they've immobilized the victim. And that's because they're smart enough to organize a, a group of four or five or eight or 10 or 12 or whatever it is, uh, to to isolate one victim and then do their worst. Okay. Um, so, but why do chimps do this? Because uh, in most species, uh, animals just defend territory. But um, what you're describing here and what you what um, primatologists have observed countless more times since then is that these chimps are actually organizing and going into other communities and basically raiding them. Uh, what is the evolutionary purpose? I mean, what, what do they stand to gain from that? It seems pretty clear what's going on. <clears throat> what they stand to gain is uh, territory. It's more land. Uh, it's not that they take over the neighboring group. It's just that uh, in, if they attack members of neighboring groups and kill them, then uh, it's more likely that they will be able to use that area in the future, that it will be poorly defended by the neighboring group. So they just uh, increase slightly the area that they use. And why is that important? It's because uh, the bigger the area, then we know this very clearly, um, the more food they get, and the more food they get, then the faster they're able to reproduce and the better they're able to survive because energy coming from food is always limiting, and the more you can get, then the better you can survive and reproduce. Fascinating. Um, so are chimps the only um, primate that does this besides human beings? I mean, do orangutans or gorillas do this sort of raiding? Uh, none of the other close relatives of humans do, but it does look as though there is some very similar behavior in actually a, a monkey that lives in uh, the Americas uh, from uh, Mexico to um, Peru, uh, the spider monkey, because they have a rather similar pattern to uh, chimpanzees of instead of living in a stable troop, uh, they break up into small units uh, like chimpanzees do. And it's because of this breaking up, a constant fission and fusion of the parties that leave sometimes a big group and sometimes an isolated individual, that you can get these great asymmetries with one group being able to isolate a lone individual. So that seems to be the key. It's not so much that chimps are closely related to us. It's more that uh, they have the same kind of grouping pattern. Interesting. So you, you talk about um, the chimps organize themselves in these little patrols, um, five or eight chimpanzees. Are these strictly male groups or are there it's, females involved? What, what? It, no, this is very, very much male. Uh, there are occasions when females might join. And um, the classic example is there was one particular female called Gigi, uh, who is now long dead. But 
when she was alive in Gombe in Tanzania, she did sometimes join the males. Now, the funny thing about Gigi is she never had a baby. She was apparently sterilized early in life, or maybe genetically uh, sterile for some reason. And uh, at any rate, she was rather male-like. She was, she was rather broad-shouldered and big. Um, and she did sometimes go on the patrols. But even then, she did not join in. She, she, would, um, she would watch the males doing all the terrible beating and, and uh, attacking, uh, and she would run around excitedly. But it, so that showed that even when a female was there, it's a male activity. And normally, it is only males. And in fact, the, the parties, the subgroups that you find within the center of the community range of chimpanzees, they are very much mixed, say 50-50, male and female. But as they move towards the edge, you find, you find the females dropping off. And then by the time they get to the right at the edge of the territory, it's pretty much 100% males. Fascinating. Um, so w- what similarities have you found between the way chimps uh, engage in warfare, from what we can call it that, um, and how they bond and group, um, and what we see in humans? Well, it, the, the things that are found in chimps are very much similar to what you find in humans, but humans make it more complicated, of mm-hmm. course. But the, you know, the elements of a group of males uh, taking opportunity to attack helpless victims and uh, not just attack them but kill them, that is something that you see in small-scale societies of humans. Um, and indeed, you, you can say that you see it in modern warfare. You know, the aim of a modern warfare, the aim of a good commander, is uh, to send his men on a, an attack that will leave them all safe and we'll just kill members of the enemy. In other words, you know, you're always trying to arrange for asymmetries of power in, to your maximum advantage. Um, what humans do that is more complicated is, is several things. I'll draw attention to two of them. One is that uh, humans take more risks. So if you look at the, the literature on, on warrior behavior in small-scale societies such as hunters and gatherers, what you find is that, unlike chimpanzees, the aggressors do sometimes get hurt. Uh, there's an ambush of the aggressors, or uh, there's a very quick uh, defense mounted by the, the defenders. They grab a weapon or whatever. And this reflects the fact that, um, that uh, some kind of benefit is needed to compensate the warriors for this, and, and the benefits are clear. They're cultural. Uh, in the societies that, of humans, uh, you have... Uh, various kinds of rewards that everyone knows about, that you will get higher status, that you will get um, uh, more wives, you will get uh, access to uh, some of the resources that are at stake. So humans are able to inculcate a a militarization of a basic biological tendency. (laughs) And then the second thing, of course, is that chimps are doing this from just one particular community um, of up to 200 individuals who all live and share the same area. But, of course, what humans can do is to organize um, the uh, coalitions to be between neighboring villages or neighboring groups, and then that uh, tremendously enlarges the whole operation. Interesting. Um, so uh, one of the things that this book did for me is it kind of um, kind of shattered that myth that a lot of people have about you know, civilized cultures being the only type of culture that engage in, engage in warfare and that primitive hunter-gatherer societies live in peace and harmony. 
Um, but you, you, the research shows that it, warfare is actually very ubiquitous or was very ubiquitous amongst hunter-gatherer societies. Um, can you, I mean, describe some of the research that shows you know, how likely someone was to get killed in a hunter-gatherer society or how likely they were to actually kill another person? Um, because I think, it, I mean, yeah, there's this idea, I guess, that the noble savage is the, the myth that people have. And where did that myth come from? And um, yeah, like, why do we have that? Um, historically, you can talk about it uh, being the, the musings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the uh, 18th, 19th century uh, French intellectual who uh, was just very impressed by uh, a few primitive or a few sort of small-scale peoples that he came across. But uh, as with many of these people, they had already been affected by modern life. And uh, the basic answer to your question about why is it that we tend to think that people living as hunters and gatherers uh, are so peaceful, is that they've very rarely been studied except where they're living next to militarily powerful farmers, and they're smart enough to know they're not going to do well fighting against the farmers. And then if you look further, you find that evidence that the farmers had in the past uh, defeated them, essentially. The critical question is, what happens when you look at hunters and gatherers that have been neighbored by other hunters and gatherers uh, who uh, speak a different language. And there are something like six culture areas around the world where you can find such cases. And there you find awful violence. So as long as you look in the right areas where you don't have uh, the hunters and gatherers already having been dominated by um, a much more powerful group, then uh, you find this sort of somewhat chimpanzee-like behavior. Hmm. So, I mean, the question is, uh, you know, you're a biological anthropologist. Um, and so there's, there must be a reason why chimps and humans, human males specifically, have this violent temperament. I mean, why was it that, the, that, that males in both these species developed a violent temperament? You know, what purpose did it serve? Well, um, in a tragic way, it seems to benefit both the males and the females. Um, the, if you think about the uh, community of chimpanzees, they are always uh, going to be surrounded by other groups of chimpanzees, and the only way they can get more access to the food that is so important for ultimately turning, you know, producing more babies and having evolutionary success uh, is to expand at the expense of the neighbors. And it so happens that in chimpanzees, um, the ecology that they have evolved with is one uh, in which it pays to live in groups that sometimes you travel alone and sometimes you travel in a bigger group, which gives rise to the asymmetry. Okay, so now males and females are both interested in getting a, a larger group, a larger area, is what I'm trying to say, um, where they can get more resources. And this will be true of any species, but only in chimpanzees, or very rarely elsewhere, do you have the regular asymmetry that enable killing to be favored. And why is it just the males? Well, the mothers are burdened by their young, and it's, it's very dangerous for them to get involved in the attacks. And over evolutionary time, natural selection has favored mothers who are relatively fearful of going to the edge and getting involved in these fights, whereas it's favored males uh, who relish the idea, who, who get very excited by the prospect of going off and beating up their neighbors. And the net result is 
that their group does well, and uh, as a consequence, uh, they do well as well. They are able to increase the number of babies they pass on to future generations. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it, and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged, and they just all add up, and you have a hard time trying to figure out, where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money and things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factor meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time. Uh, to to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. 
So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss, a lot of useful information in there, talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Um, human beings are, are not only related to chimpanzees. Uh, in recent, particularly in the media, they talked a lot about the bonobos uh, or bonobos. I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, as, as sort of this uh, docile or peaceful, you know, close relative of ours. Um, so yeah, the, the chimps and the bonobos have a different culture where the chimps are more aggressive and the bonobos more peaceful. Can you describe a little bit more detail the difference between chimps and bonobos and why these differences emerge between the two? Yeah, it is a totally fascinating story, and we still don't understand all of it. Um, but um, uh, you said there's a different culture between them, and in a sense that's right, but if we're going to be strictly accurate, it's a different biology. It's a different psychology. You, know, you put chimpanzees and bonobos into uh, zoos uh, in identical conditions, and there's a complete difference in the way they behave. Now, this is very, very striking because bonobos are very like chimpanzees to look at. In fact, they're so similar that um, Western scientists had seen bonobos for some time, uh, several years, before they realized that they are a different species. And it's the behavior that shows it. And what is it about the behavior? It's, it's a number of things, but more striking than anything, the bonobos are, as you said, relatively peaceful. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about captive or wild, males or females, um, whether they've been fed by humans or they're in nature, uh, whether you're talking about within-group aggression or between-group aggression, in all these ways, chimpanzees are far more aggressive than the bonobos. So that's the fact. There are other things linked to this. There's, uh, there's more um, non-conceptive sexuality among the bonobos. They're famously homosexual. They're famously diverse in their sexual practices. Um, but the important thing... Uh, from a biological perspective, the most important thing seems to be the reduced aggression. And now where does this come from? Well, the one thing I think we can say about this with some confidence is that bonobos have evolved from a chimpanzee-like ancestor rather than the other way around. And the reason you can say that is because of a fascinating similarity between bonobos and dogs. So this is a little bit surprising that I suddenly introduced totally different species. <laughs> But here's the formula. Wolf is to dog as chimpanzee is to bonobo. In other words, dogs have evolved from wolves by reducing aggression. They've become domesticated. And bonobos have evolved from something like chimpanzees by reducing aggression. And the reason we can say this is because just as you find in all domesticated animals, there are certain features that change in the skull. The skull becomes relatively small in dogs compared to wolves. Uh, the teeth become smaller, the face becomes shorter, and the brain becomes smaller. Well, all of these things happen in bonobos compared to chimps. It's a fascinating story of a parallel in the wild to what we see in domesticated animals. And uh, the parallels mean that there was natural selection against aggressiveness in bonobos, and they ended up being this, this nicer, kinder species. They're still somewhat aggressive, but just enormously less so than, than chimps. 
This probably has started happening uh, just a little less than a million years ago, long after the chimpanzee bonobo line had, had split off from humans about six million years ago. And, uh, and why it happened, uh, it's, it's a fascinating question, and I think the answer is something to do with the fact that bonobos live in stable groups, unlike these um, constantly varying groups of chimps that give rise to the power asymmetries where aggression can be car easily carried out very safely. Uh, <clears throat> the reason that bonobos live in more stable groups is because they have access to different kinds of foods from the chimps. And the specific foods that appear so really important are those that are also eaten by gorillas. Well, now, guess what? There are no gorillas in the areas of Africa where bonobos live. They live in the areas where chimpanzees live. So chimps and, and gorillas compete over these certain foods, and, and because there are gorillas there eating them, then the chimps can't. So the gorillas are able to uh, eat them, and by the way, that leads them to live in stable groups. The foods we're talking about are meadows of uh, edible herbs on the forest floor. So in the bonobo areas, no gorillas to eat them. Uh, the bonobos do, in fact, eat them, and when they're eating them, they can stay together in stable groups just like the gorillas can. So we think that there is a deep ecological difference between these two species that's led to a difference in grouping patterns, that's led to a difference in the economics of aggression, such that aggression doesn't pay in the bonobo world. And they've ended up self-domesticating, a bit like ending up like a dog compared to a wolf. So is it, I guess, resource abundance that leads to stability? I mean, is this herb pretty abundant where you don't have to really fight for it or take a risk That's for right. it? That's right. Yeah, it's a kind of a local resource abundance. It's the way the food is distributed that, that enables bonobos to take this different evolutionary path. And it just shows how arbitrary it is whether or not a species ends up being more or less aggressive. Hmm. Okay. Um, so let's move on to this because I thought this is really interesting. Um, it's about patriarchy. Right, it's a it's a hot topic uh, amongst uh, social scientists and feminists, and it's popularly yeah. thought that patriarchy is this complete social or cultural construct, and it's often unique to Western cultures. However, you highlight research in your book that not only from primatologists but also from anthropologists that patriarchy is much more ubiquitous uh, than we formerly thought, and that there's likely a biological reason for it. Uh, can you describe uh, the theory of where, how uh, patriarchy has a biological underpinning? Yeah, I mean, this is one of these classic confusions when uh, people are looking at, at uh, sort of somewhat related questions and appearing to disagree when actually they don't really. Um, in other words, sure, patriarchy is strongly cultural in the sense that there are lots of differences among different human societies. Uh, some are much more patriarchal, some are much less so, and those differences are going to be due to, to culture, uh, not to differences in genes or anything like that. But at the same time, uh, if you look at humans compared to uh, other species, then you find that we are sort of a particular characteristic form, and that is we are a species in which overall there is um, a very consistent tendency for patriarchy in every society. So were there any true matriarchal societies among hunters and gatherers or anybody else? No. Uh, you don't find it at all. You find um, sort of people sometimes drifting in that direction, um, 
You find uh, sometimes women's houses or women's being able to take important roles in, in communal decisions. But if there is ever a clash between what the men want to do and what the women want to do, then uh, the authority always resides with the men. So in that sense, uh, every single human society is, is patriarchal. And by the way, you know, this is not just uh, some man uh, saying this. I mean, if you take, there was a book edited by two strong feminists called Women, Culture and Society uh, in the 1980s, and um, endless chapters uh, by women anthropologists, and everyone agreed. You know, there are no matriarchal societies. So this is not some fantasy of, uh, of men. This is uh, a, uh, a very firm conclusion from an analysis of the political lives of people living in every different kind of society. And so, I mean, what is... So we, we all see patriarchy not only in humans, but in chimps uh, in yes. a way. I mean, so why is it because males, both in chimps and in humans, are physically stronger and that they have to do these raids to go and you know get more territory? I mean, is that the biological underpinning of patriarchy in both species? I mean, it may well have played a role, but it clearly isn't enough. And here's why we can say that. The bonobos provide a fascinating counterpoint. Because in bonobos, the males are bigger than the females. And if it was just a matter of strength, then the bonobos would undoubtedly be able to dominate the females. But if there are conflicts between males and females in bonobos, the females routinely win. And you can talk about uh, them being sort of co-dominant between the males and the females, or sometimes you can say that the females seem to be dominating the males, but you never say that males are dominating the females. Um, so, so there is a case where the differences in strength are not enough to account for the differences in social behavior. And the missing piece is the motivation of individuals to uh, get together with other members of their own gender or sex, in the case of bonobos and chimpanzees, um, and form alliances. And in, in chimpanzees and humans, you have this very strong motivation of men to form really effective alliances that fight alongside each other. And it's quite clear that that would have paid off in evolutionary time in the context of fighting against neighboring groups. And I think that a very reasonable interpretation of the evolutionary history of patriarchy is that it stems from that tendency. It stems from, essentially, uh, war. So men now are able to use the alliances that they uh, have come to so readily form in the context of war uh, to dominate life within uh, each society, whether it's um, you know modern-day America or uh, or uh, hunter-gatherers living on the African plains, and by the way, you know one should recognise that patriarchy, in this sense of male dominance, is cultural in this sense that it depends on um, the relationships among men uh, or among women at the level of communal discussion. But if you're talking about just a man and a woman alone in their house, then it's quite wrong to think about males always being dominant. I mean, in, in some, in some uh, marriages, a man might be dominant to a woman. In others, a woman might be dominant to a man. Mm -hmm. There is no consistency there. It, it's once you get to the social, cultural area uh, that you get the consistency. But what is so striking, as you said, is that it occurs both in humans and in chimpanzees. Fascinating. Um, so 
here's a question. So you're, I guess you're, you're at Harvard University, correct? Yes. So I think one of your colleagues, Stephen Pinker, wrote the Better Nature Angels of Ourselves, and he makes the argument that violence is decreasing uh, in the world. Um, so I mean, if if violence and aggression is an evolved trait in male humans, why is it that violence is going down? Is can culture tame the beast, or is there something else that's going on that because we live in an environment that has resource abundance, we no longer have to be violent to uh, gain an advantage uh, in the world? Um, so the, the answer to that, I mean, the, there's this big question. You say, well, if it's an evolved tendency, then how come it's it's going down. Um, the implication of the question is that if something has a biological uh, component, then it's going to be fixed. But that's, a, that's an inappropriate um, implication, and, and I'm glad you brought it up because it's really important for people to recognize that just because there's an evolved tendency, that doesn't mean it's fixed. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, Pinker did a wonderful job in uh, showing that uh, at everywhere you look, there is a tremendous evidence of a reduction in the actual frequency of death by violence or torture or slavery or all sorts of things that um, that uh, were far worse in the past in terms of violence. So what is happening? Well, you see, your, one of your ideas was, uh, have we become so, um, so well supplied with the resources that we don't need to fight? I don't think that's a very powerful explanation because if you look in history and if you um, look in animals and if you think about it theoretically, you actually expect that animals, individuals, groups of humans that have uh, the great ability to use resources uh, to attack their neighbors will do so. Uh, there are many examples where as you get uh, more resources and have more power, then you use it. So merely more power for some groups is not so important. But however, if you say everybody is doing better and so we're all able to uh, put up more effective defenses, well, then that would seem much more reasonable. Hmm. I think the, I mean, Pinker drew attention to, I think he had six different forces that he he reckoned were very important. And some of those were uh, moral, you know, the the spread of a, a different kind of morality towards um, people of neighboring groups. Uh, can culture tame the beast? Absolutely. Uh, it clearly is doing so. To me, the really exciting area is uh, the development of institutions um, that have been going on for several hundred years uh, that uh, intervene when there is is war. I mean, you know, we're seeing it now. Uh, a tremendous number of... Um, of uh, ideas and, and organizations are being brought into play to try and, and control uh, the violence that's going on in the Middle East. Well, uh, a thousand years ago, it would have just played itself out and people would have um, massacred each other without anyone intervening. So there's, there's now uh, a much greater effort uh, at all levels to reduce violence wherever it appears. Okay. Um so your your book, the title of the book is Demonic Males. And I think some people who would read it or um, would get the idea that, you know, men are inherently flawed because they have this violent tendency and human culture is somewhat helplessly at the mercy of the male propensity towards violence. But are there reasons, you know, for optimism in your research? And what do you hope people take away from these insights in your book? 
I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm generally a, a positivist uh, who thinks that the more we understand them, the better we can take advantage of our understanding. And um, I do feel that the reasons for optimism. Um, I think that um, uh, one of the things that, that demonic males reminds us is that there are important psychological differences between men and women, and uh, I think it's a, it's a real stimulus to uh, help promote the notion of increasing political power for women. I think it's just great that countries like Rwanda and, um, and some of the Scandinavian countries uh, have now got around 50% of the legislatures at the national level uh, being composed of, of women. Um, I think one can confidently expect that that will tend to lead to, to less aggressive policies. Um, among men, purely, uh, I think that if we can understand that aggression is motivated by power difference, which is what much different kinds of research uh, suggests, then uh, we are reminded that it's really valuable to try and er erode power differences, to make sure that we have balances of power at, at all sorts of different levels. Because the way natural selection and evolution work is that individuals don't want to take risks. And if we can reduce the cultural uh, enjoyments for militarization, uh, then uh, if we can arrange society in such a way that there aren't huge imbalances of power, we can expect that we will live in a much nicer world. Very interesting. Well, Dr. Ringham, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for the interview. It's wonderful to talk to you. Our guest today was Dr. Richard Ringham. He is a professor of biological anthropology at Harvard University and the co-author of the book Demonic Males, Apes and the Origins of Human Violence. And you can find that book on Amazon.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And uh, if you enjoy the show um, and you're getting something out of it, I'd really appreciate if you'd go onto iTunes or Stitcher or whatever it is you use to listen to the podcast and give us a rating. That will really help us out. It doesn't matter what it is. If you think it's five stars, five stars. If you think it's one star, one star, that's okay. Uh, be honest. And uh, I'd really appreciate that. So until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.